Well, today we're continuing our series on the book of Colossians with a message titled, Who is Jesus? And we're going to be in Colossians chapter 1, starting in verse 15, if you want to turn there in your Bible. How many people here have ever flown on a commercial airliner? So everybody kind of knows what it is and how it works. Uh, how many people actually pay attention to the flight attendant as they give their safety briefing? Or do you already have your, your headphones in and, and listening to music or, or doing something else? Well, today, I want you to think of this message as a safety briefing. And instead of the 60% that don't listen to it, hopefully you'll listen to it today, because I want you to think of this message as that briefing and what to do if the plane starts going down. In fact, let's pretend for a moment that we're on a smaller plane, say we're a tour plane, flying in Colorado, you and 10 other people on the plane. You're looking out the window, you're looking at the Rocky Mountains, you're looking at the, the animals running on the hills and, and just amazed at all the high mountain peaks and you're focused so much on looking around and you've gotten so used to the sound of the engines that you don't even notice that, that hum that, that they make and that, the noise that they make. That is, until that noise shuts off all of a sudden. The pilot comes over to PA system, tells everybody, um, everybody make sure you're in your seat, make sure your seat belts are tightly fastened. We have a little bit of a mechanical issue that we're working through, but don't worry. The crew is well trained. We'll get those engines back up and running in no time. We've got plenty of altitude um, and we're gliding well and it'll be, it'll, we got this under control. Well, obviously you're going to be a little bit more tense. It's like, okay, I'm over the top of mountains and I have no engines, I mean, and you keep hearing a high-pitched noise coming out of the engines as they try over and over and over again to restart them. And after about five minutes, the pilot comes back on the PA. Ladies and gentlemen, we regret to inform you that we've actually run out of fuel. Our gauges were wrong when we started the flight, and we just figured that out, that our fuel tanks and even the emergency fuel tank absolutely dry right now. So we cannot turn the engines back on, and due to our rate of descent, we have no chance of reaching an airport and getting over the top of the mountain peaks. And there's no area around here long enough or flat enough or any body of water for us to land in for an emergency landing. However, given that we're a smaller craft, I'm happy to inform you that we actually have parachutes for everybody on board. We're currently circling a fairly level plateau, and although we can't land on it with an airplane, it'd be a great place to land with a parachute. In about 10 minutes, we're all going to jump out of the airplane. We'll have reduced enough speed and gotten low enough to open the doors and jump out, and, and we'll all land on that plateau. Everything will be fine. Emergency services, Rocky Mountain Rescue is already on the way, and they'll be able to take care of us. And you immediately start thinking, wow. I wish I paid a little bit more attention to that safety briefing. I wish I, I, I don't recall them ever talking about a parachute though. But not to worry, the flight attendants are very well versed in this and they hand you a big parachute with an instruction card on it, how to wear it and how to use it. She tells you it's very simple, just step into the loops, pull it up over, fasten the chest uh, strap and then pull everything 
tight until your voice changes. And when you jump, it'll open automatically when you reach a certain fall rate or a certain altitude. And if it doesn't open, just look down and to the left, see the red handle, pull it straight out, and parachute will open and you'll just float right down on top of that plateau. She moves on quickly, explains it to the next row of people. So now you have this big, heavy burlap sack sitting on your lap. It's the only thing that's going to save you from this coming crash. In that moment, do you wish you knew a little bit about parachuting? Do you wish you'd paid a little more attention during the safety briefing? Would you want a couple extra minutes just to watch a couple YouTube videos or, or read really about how this thing works or how to land with a parachute or how to steer it? I mean, after all, this device is supposed to save your life. And you know very little about it other than what you've seen on TV or in a movie. You know, in this life we live, we all have mountains that our planes are heading to, so to speak. Some of these mountains might be sickness, some of it might be relationship issues, some of it might be job losses. If you read the news, it might be war, it might be famine, it might be espionage and spice balloons and everything else. And coupled with the fact that barring the rapture, none of us are going to get out of life alive. But I have good news today. Even if our plane seems to be going down, God gave us a parachute. And that parachute has a name, and it's Jesus. Now, prior to today, you may not have paid attention to the safety briefings that we call sermons. It may have tuned out or chosen not to think about what would happen if your life looks like it's about to crash. And I know that today, we're living in very chaotic times. You can't watch the news with, without just smacking yourself in the head thinking, what are they doing? What are they thinking? What are they trying to promote? It doesn't make any sense. There seems to be dangers anywhere. And we want to make sure that if God calls us to jump into our next life, that we do so being very intimately acquainted with the thing that will ensure our soft landing into heaven. We're going to look at Jesus this morning. We're going to see who he is. We're going to look at why we need him. And we'll finish with what we need to do. Now we're going to read through first for, for all the way th or through, excuse me, Colossians chapter 1, 15 through 27. But we're going to break it up a little bit into smaller chunks. And let's start first with getting to know our Savior, our parachute if you will, and a person who's going to save us from the crash that is coming. Colossians chapter 1, verse 15. He, meaning Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether Thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things were created by him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he may have the supremacy. 
For God was pleased to have all of his fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. And Father God, we ask, Lord, as we read this this morning, that we'll come into a greater appreciation for who you are, a greater appreciation for who you want to be in our lives, and develop a greater trust in you as we live in this very chaotic time, Lord. Father God, help us to trust you and you alone with our salvation. Father God, I ask this in your name. Amen. Now, I mentioned at the beginning of the message, the time to get to know Jesus is now. Just like you wouldn't want to be in a plane that is going down and then just given a parachute you've never seen before, so you want to get to know this person who will save you from a disaster of crashing your life into something called hell. So we're going to look at who this man is named Jesus. Well, verse 15 gives us the first clue. It says that he is the image of the invisible God. Now, there are countless statues, countless works of art, countless drawings that have attempted to depict what Father God might look like. But Paul here makes it simple in the Bible. He said, if you want to see the Father, you look to Jesus. Now, I know that many of us can't really grasp that very well. You're not alone. Not even his disciples grasp that very well. As they were walking to the Garden of Gethsemane after the Last Supper, his disciples were peppering him with questions. This is the last walk they'll ever take with Jesus, the Garden of Gethsemane, before he, he, he rose to heaven. But Jesus is just trying to get somewhere quiet. He knows what's coming. He needs some time alone with his Father in prayer. But his disciples just kept asking him question after question after question, not really allowing him to relax. So I can tell you this with all surety, mothers, Jesus knows how you feel. To be peppered with questions when you just want to relax. You see one of the questions here in the Gospel of John, chapter 14. In John 14, verse 9, Thomas says to him, Lord, we don't know where you are going, so how can we know the way? Jesus answered, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you really knew me, you would know my Father as well. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Philip said, Lord, show us a father and that will be enough for us. Jesus answered, don't you know me, Philip? Even after I have been with you such a long time, anyone who has seen me has seen the father. Now, I know many of us grew up with this idea that the secular world tries to put upon us that God the Father is some grumpy, bearded, old white guy sitting on a cloud somewhere, polishing lightning bolts, ready to throw them at us for any, any uh, sin that he, he feels like throwing them at us for. But Jesus is the nice guy that protects us from his grumpy father. But that's not true. The Father and Son are one. 
They're one in likeness. They're one in appearance. They're one in deity. They're one in knowledge and power and in presence. Both the Father and the Son, together with the Holy Spirit, love each one of you with an intensity that rivals the brightness of the noonday sun. And these verses in Colossians explain in no uncertain terms that Jesus is just as much God, just as much creator, and just as much in charge as the Father. In fact, verse 19 says, For God was pleased to have all of his fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. You see, this man, Jesus, our Messiah, had all of the divine living inside of him. Now, what does that mean in relation to how the Father and Jesus are one? I heard, a perf- I heard an analogy once. It's not a perfect analogy, but it does describe this idea in verse 20 fairly well. There was a father who bought his son a new ATV with a condition that he was not allowed to ride in his ATV unless his father was home. And that if he did, he'd receive a whooping if he broke that rule. One day, the father was driving back to the property from town, and he saw all kinds of ATV tire tracks in the field. He walked into the house, and he saw his son hiding in a corner because his son knew he was going to get it. The father took his belt off to punish the boy, but instead of spanking the boy, the father began to hit himself with the belt, taking the punishment the boy deserved, showing the boy the seriousness of his misbehavior. You see, that's what Jesus and the father did for us. They gave us paradise. They gave us paradise on earth called the Garden of Eden. With only one rule, don't eat from that tree. And two commandments, eat all you want and be fruitful and multiply. That's all they had to do, and they messed that up. Fast forward about 4,000 years. God, through Jesus Christ, took out the belt and struck himself with it by allowing his son to be beaten and crucified on our behalf, taking the penalty for our rebellion and our sin. That introduces us to our next question, what is Jesus to us? Colossians 1.21 says, Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior, but now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight without blemish and free from accusation. If you continue in your faith, established and firm, not move from the hope held out in the gospel. This is a gospel that you have heard that has been proclaimed to every creature under heaven, of which I, Paul, have become a servant. You see, Jesus took that punishment that you and I deserve, and that through believing in him, we, might be, we will be saved. Continuing with our original analogy that started this message, I have to ask you a question. Jesus is giving you that parachute. He is that parachute for you. 
But your plane is going down. If you stay in your seat with the parachute on your lap, will you be saved? You got to put on the parachute. There are a few conditions to fulfill. You have to unbuckle your seatbelt. You have to stand up. Step into the leg loops. Put the shoulder straps on. Fasten that chest strap really tight. And then you have to walk through the door. And you have to leave the aircraft. In other words, you have to jump, trusting that that parachute will work and you'll land safely. That's called exercising your faith in Jesus, trusting him with all of that. And that's a very hard thing for people to do. That's why the Bible sets us up by explaining that we were alienated from God because of our evil behavior. You see, sin does that to a person. It hardens the heart. It hardens that understanding. And it rips away that sensitivity to anything about God. Have you ever met a person so resistant to the things of God that they can't even be reasonable anymore? I see it all the time as an ER nurse. People so dedicated to being apart from God that the very mention of God causes them to lash out. That's why the cross is such an offense to them. That's why the devil does everything he can to mock the cross. Because you can't really argue with it. It's such an example of God's overwhelming love for us that they can't deal with it so they lash out that's why God says they and at one time us were enemies of God they choose to live apart from them we couldn't stand to think of them when we were in sin because that cross was so offensive we couldn't grasp that kind of love because of the coerciveness of sin in our hearts and that's why I thank God for the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit that softened our hearts. The Holy Spirit that drew us toward Christ. That removed those scales from our eyes. It changed our, he changed our way of thinking so that we could look at Jesus. We could look at the cross. We could understand our need for him. And experience the love of God as we surrender our lives to him and his kingdom. But there is a caveat there. You need to put the parachute on. You need to trust in him. You need to put on Jesus Christ by trusting in him as your Lord and your God, your Savior and your King. The second caveat, you need to keep the parachute on. If you jump out of the plane and wiggle out of the parachute on the way down, do you expect to live? No. Too many people believe it's a one and done thing. In other words, I prayed a prayer at 14, haven't followed God in 30 years. I should still be fine. No, you got to keep the parachute on. The Bible crushes that argument. You are only saved and reconciled to God if you continue in your faith, established and firm, not moved from the hope that is held out in the gospel. And it's not just Paul saying this. Jesus himself said it. Speaking of the end times, Jesus said this in Matthew 24, verses 10 through 14. He said, in that time, many will turn away from the faith and will betray and hate each other. And many false prophets will appear and deceive many people. Because of the increase of wickedness, 
The love of most will grow cold. Now look at verse 13. He said, he who stands firm to the end will be saved. In other words, the one who kept the parachute on are the ones that land safely into the arm of, arms of God in heaven. My friends, it's not time to coast and hope that our spiritual momentum will somehow allow us to cross the finish line. If anything, spiritually speaking, we should be preparing for war because it's coming. I don't know if you've noticed, I mentioned it during Sunday school, but the nation above Canada and the nation below us, Mexico, are jailing Christians for hate speech. It's coming. And it's worldwide now. I'm not saying that to, to, to put into you a sense of fear. I'm not telling you to run away. It's not our time to hide the, our heads in the sand. It's time to press on toward the high calling that Jesus has given us. To be his ambassadors. To be his high priest. To be his representatives here on earth. To shine our light into the world. To illuminate to other people the way to salvation. I want to leave us this morning with the Bible's final admonition about this topic. I titled this section, What Now? Colossians 1.24. Now I rejoice in what was suffered for you, and I fill up with my flesh what is still lacking in regard to Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, which is the church. I have become its servant by the commission God gave me to present you the word of God in its fullness. The mystery that has been kept hidden for ages and generations, but is now disclosed to the saints. To them God has chosen to make known among the Gentiles the glorious riches of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Now, verse 24 gets a lot of people messed up because they read that as Paul saying that he has to somehow make up for what Jesus didn't do. That's what, that's what that verse sounds like to most people. It's an unfortunate translation. A better way of saying it is that, look, all the suffering Jesus went through by taking upon himself the the sin of the entire world, that was the complete thing. What Paul is saying here is nothing I can do, nothing I can suffer, nothing I can endure will ever come close to what he has already done for me. He is the Savior. He's saying I am a servant to his gospel message. I am a servant to his embassy here on earth that we call the church. And that is my final thought for today. If not for the church, how do people get saved? How can people be discipled? How can people be called and sent to proclaim the only message by which this world can be saved? If not for the church. If we don't act like the church, we're like people standing at the door of the airplane, throwing the parachutes out, not letting anybody else be saved, and then us jumping, leaving everyone else to suffer the crash. My friends, that should not 
be the legacy of the church. Let's prepare ourselves to stand for him in these last days. So I ask you this morning, who is Jesus to you? Is he your Lord? Is he your God? Is he your Savior and your King or somebody you only pay attention to on Sunday morning? Let's all rise. Father, as I was in prayer this morning, I heard you clearly speak to me. Choose you this day who you will serve. It's time to quit playing around. It's time to consecrate ourselves fully to your mission for us in this life. It is time for us to become a doulos, a, a servant that chooses the slavery to the gospel so that others can be saved. The time for part-time Christianity is long past. So I ask, Father, that you help all of us consecrate Jesus Christ in our hearts, that you will help all of us turn from any secret sin in our life. Any hold that Satan may have on us, let us reject it this morning. Father God, I ask, Lord, that you enable us to walk before you, shining brightly into this world, so that others may see the way of salvation. Lord God, I just place that burden upon every heart here, Lord, that people will no longer be worried about what they're doing on Friday night, about their favorite hobby and sport and all that kind of stuff, but the principal thing in their life will be the gospel of Jesus Christ. The time is too short for anything else. Father God, I thank you. I thank you for your word. I thank you for its power. And I ask that that power rest on everyone here, that your word would be like a fire shut up in their bones, Lord, that they just have to proclaim it to those who need it, Father. Lord God, we thank you. I bless your people now. Be with them this week and use them to shine that light into the darkness of somebody's life that desperately needs it. Father God, I bless them now, and I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.